Flip to Colossians 1. Tonight we're looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. As I mentioned last week, we're going to kind of just piecemeal our way through the book, uh, not, not rush ourselves through it, because I think there's just a lot of great stuff here to pay attention to. And um, this first chapter is especially poignant in much of what the Apostle Paul has to say. But Colossians chapter 1, Kingdom Light. Let's go ahead as we give attention to God's Word. Let's stand together for Colossians chapter 1, 9 through 14. These are the words of God. For this reason also, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the full knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and multiplying in the full knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, the source of all light, by your word you give light to the soul. Pour out on us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that our hearts and minds may be opened through Christ our Lord. And amen. You can be seated. So last week we saw that Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, had offered up praise for the church in Colossae. These remarkable saints, these remarkable believers had received the gospel and it had borne fruit in their lives, exhibited most notably, by the way, as love in the spirit, love in the spirit. Paul commends their faith in the Lord, their love for one another, their hope in Christ's session as Lord and King. You'll remember that Epaphras had shared Christ with them, establishing the church in the word of truth, in the gospel. And this gospel fruit had been multiplying, which is what is supposed to happen. It is supposed to multiply. And it was multiplying in this small town of Colossae, situated in the Lycus Valley. And of course, it was multiplying in all the world. So Paul is very excited about that to see the gospel multiplying in this way. And of course, we can be excited because despite what we see on the news, it's the best way to get rid of a headache, turn the news off, right? Uh, The gospel is multiplying in the world today. Christianity is, in fact, the fastest growing religion in the world. It continues to grow, and it especially grows where there is heavy persecution. You think of places like North Korea, Pakistan, uh, even in northern Africa, places like that. Now, and that's you know, intentionally, because the gospel is actually a multiplying force. It's inherently a multiplying force. Because the power of the gospel rests in God, the giver of that power, it's built into it. It's supposed to be a multiplying force. We should expect the gospel, when proclaimed, to continue to multiply in the world, in all the hard places, and, of course, America is no different. Now, the letter here is an example of prayer, And it's also an example of the importance of celebrating the work of God in the lives of others. The Apostle Paul's affection, as we just read in Philippians, you can see it there too, but his affection for people he's never even met is worth noticing. How he loves them and cares for them. His pastoral concern is a good example of brotherly affection, celebrating 
the gospel at work in, in others' lives. And we should take great care, I think, in recognizing and celebrating God's work among all nations and all peoples. That's why it's such a joy to continue to keep in touch with some of our friends in Zambia. Uh, just chatting with uh, one of the, our friends there this week. It's, it's neat to see God at work in those places because we can tend to just look inward and see only what's going on here. And oftentimes, if we just look to ourselves, things are more bleak than they are exciting sometimes. So we should count the wins, we should celebrate the wins, and we should rejoice that God is at work. Now, the main point last week was driving home the centrality of the word of truth. The centrality of the word of truth, this is the gospel, and basically the centrality of the truth in a world where there are rival antithetical words of truth. And I just think of in, in light of last week's midterm elections and the enshrinement of full-term abortion in California, Michigan, Vermont, uh, there are numerous words of truth trying and vying in the culture, trying to win the culture, but the reality is we know that they are words of the lie. They are not words of truth, they are words of the lie. The lie of autonomy, the lie of rebellion, the lie of, of self-discovery, the lie of the antithesis. So the elevation of the, the elevation of the creature over the creator is what we see unfold. And especially last week, we saw it in our political sphere, in the cultural sphere. So we need to be discerning. We need to be discerning people. We must hold true to the gospel of the kingdom, and we must be resolute in our declaration of it. So that was kind of what we talked about last week. But in our passage this evening, Paul is going to shift his prayer just a bit, and it is a prayer. And what we need to be able to do is truly behold the incredible truths that we find therein and think deeply about them and not just sort of read this. You read this, as I mentioned last week, it kind of feels like a word salad, just throwing words around. But we need to stop and pause and read it and, and contemplate it. And the word of truth, when the word of truth captures your heart, there are, of course, a truckload of blessings that come with it. The challenge for us is making sure we do not grow apathetic about them. It's not enough to just know a few things about Christ. Oh, yeah, we're coming up on Christmas. Oh, yeah, he was born. Oh, yeah, that thing, right? We, we don't want to be apathetic about him. It's not, just enough to, it's not enough to just know a few things about Christ. You must really and truly know him in an experiential way. We must behold him in his word and in, in, in prayer. We must give attention to the means of grace that he's given us. Now, apathy, apathy itself grows when knowledge wanes. If, if you have grown apathetic in your life for various things, you, you don't, joy seems so far from you, you're just a curmudgeon and you can't believe this season of your life is still going on. Apathy grows when knowledge wanes. That's the connection we're going to see here. Backsliding begins where knowledge of God ends. The thing about fruit is, we know, it is supposed to grow. Fruit is supposed to grow. And that's the goal, for example, of an apple tree. All right, kids, what, what do apple trees produce? Apples. apples. If it produces something else, it's not an apple, correct? So if you ignore, think about this in, in a gardening metaphor. We looked at that last week. If, if you ignore the orchard, weeds will choke the tree and consume the entire place. Whether that's your little uh, garden at home or whether that's a farmer's field, if you ignore it, it will collapse. You won't have fruit for very much longer. And that's what sin does. As gardeners of our hearts, 
Knowledge of God in a fully orb sense must prevail in your life. You must know God. You must know Him deeply, intimately, in an experiential way. Now, in an age of social revolution, looking around us, fueled by unbelief, ethical anarchy, we don't, it's not even an argument about the Constitution anymore. <laughs> We're talking about basic dignity, human beings made in the image of God. In an age of all of that nonsense, Christians must embrace what we've been given. We must embrace it. We must wield it. We wield what we've been given. And frankly, given Paul's example here, we should make a concerted effort at intercessory prayer along the way. That's what part of chapter 1 is all about. Paul intercedes for them in prayer to people he's never met. He spends time praying for them, asking God to fill them, um, asking God to help them walk properly, to continue multiplying, to be strengthened. We, we could learn a lot on just on prayer, although that's not going to be the main focus. So let's look at our passage tonight again. For this reason also, verse 9, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the full knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit, there's that phrase again, in every good work and multiplying in the full knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom... In this Son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The, the goal of Paul's intercessory prayer, he's petitioning God, of course, with full faith, full confidence all along the way. The goal is for the Colossians to understand where true knowledge is sourced. Where is true knowledge sourced? Where do we even get knowledge? That was a discussion I had last week several times with some of, some of these students. Where do we even get knowledge? Where does it come from? Where is it sourced? And the answer, of course, is that knowledge originates in the God of all knowledge. That's where knowledge comes from. Um, God is completely self-aware. He, he, he doesn't look for information. Uh, he's, he's never once insecure about his knowledge. He knows all things immediately at once. Never has to do a Google search, that sort of thing. So Paul here, if you look at kind of the outline here, he wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God. That's in verse 9. They are to be filled with the knowledge of God. They are to please God by walking in a manner suitable to his glory. That's in verse 10. They are to bear fruit and multiply in this knowledge, right? Once they get the knowledge in verse 10, they're supposed to multiply in that knowledge. And verse 11, they're to be strengthened by God in all power and to be thankful to God for the Father's granting of an inheritance based on the Son's redemption. That's verses 12 through 14. Now notice there's a phrase, full knowledge is used twice. That's one thing about studying your Bible you can do is just look, look at what words are repeated several times because in the mind of Paul and in the mind of Scripture all over the place, repetition matters. There's a reason that they continue to say this. But full knowledge, that phrase, is used twice. And note that the word all is used four times. And then here's the words, just kind of a quick survey of the words of the passage. We have knowledge, we have wisdom, we have understanding. Uh, he talks about a manner, a certain manner of a quality of walking. We have the word power. We have the word might, kind of related, interconnected words. We have steadfastness. We have patience. We have inheritance, darkness, kingdom, redemption. 
These are, uh, it's not just thrown together haphazardly. There's a logical uh, point to Paul's writing here. Now, in verse 9, the apostle explains that one of the outcomes of his hope and his prayer for them is that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Knowledge, if it is to be true knowledge, accords with God's purposes. He connects knowledge with God's will. God's knowledge of God is connected to God's will. It is revelational. That's what we talk about in Reformed, uh, Reformed epistemology, a theory of knowledge. What, how do we know? It's because it's revelational. And what we mean is that God, the all-knowing one, he reveals himself. And he can't help in revealing himself to have revealed knowledge as well because God is knowledge. He's the infinite source of all knowledge. And we need to remember that knowledge isn't inherently found in man's reason. And that's where everybody wants to go today. I know things because I know them in my own heart. Therefore, I justify it in my own mind. Your truth is your truth. Mine is mine. That's the, that's the logic. But that's not how no, true knowledge is not sourced in man. It's in God. And that's the core, again, with the problem of, of the minds of Western men. Knowledge, Paul says, is spiritual in that it's connected to the work of the Holy Spirit. And this knowledge only comes from God. Not human tradition or philosophical conjecture and abstraction, sort of the cogito uh, ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Actually, we think because God is I am. That's the problem uh, with Descartes and his formulation. And that's been the problem ever since for the past 500 years of Western society. Knowledge only comes from God. Uh, we observe things, you know, we observe things, we know something's hot, something's cold. Something's red, something's blue, and we can know those things with certainty, but we only know them because God has ordered the universe. It all goes back to Him. Now, the Spirit, we know, searches all things. That's from 1 Corinthians 2. We looked at it a couple weeks ago. The Spirit searches all things. The spiritual person examines all things as a result. So the knowledge that Paul puts forth, the Greek word is actually epignosis, epignosis, and it's not Gnosis in Greek, the heresy of Gnosticism. Knowledge of God, uh, it, that's one thing, but it's not special or secretive Gnostic cult knowledge. The Gnostic cult grew much later in the first century, but its seeds were planted very shortly after the apostles. And the Gnostics believed, of course, that they just had this internal enlightenment and that's all that mattered. Uh, Paul prays that they would have the Christian mind, essentially. He prays that your... Same thing for us. We should pray for each other that we would have a Christian mind. We should think Christianly about, about things. We should be trained to think in line with God's self-revelation. So mental transformation, the renewal of the mind, is the prerequisite of, and it's the foundation for, ethical and spiritual renewal. So to know, know God means you need to understand who God is as he's revealed himself. To be sure of anything in this world, knowledge has to come from from him. Now, the, and we have to keep this in mind, especially with talking with unbelievers, uh, knowledge does involve the mind. It does involve the mind. We need, we, God has give, given us a mind to think and abstract, and we can deduce and induce. We can do all these different things with our mind. The laws of logic come from God. We, we know that. But knowledge, it, it does involve the mind, but the mind we need to know, and this is the trouble with unbelief today, but the mind stems from the faith function of the heart. The mind isn't disconnected, and then the heart, your feelings, your emotions, those are all disconnected. 
all of it, all of your humanity is sourced from the heart. God has put that faith function in every, everyone, even unbelievers. So in this case, wisdom, he brings up the issue of wisdom. Wisdom is conformity to the laws of creation and revelation. That's what wisdom is. We know that if there is a bunch of white snow accumulated on the ground, we can conclude through experience and walking outside, we probably need a coat unless you're from the deep north of Michigan and then you just do whatever with snow, <laughs> which they did get snow this weekend. Good for them. Uh, but wisdom, we know wisdom in creation. We can, kind of, we can kind of anticipate, yeah, this is the time of year the leaves will fall off the tree and so on and so forth. But wisdom is also conformity to not just the laws of creation, but the laws of revelation. What has God revealed in history to us? Wisdom conforms to that. If you don't conform to God's revelation, you don't have knowledge and you don't have wisdom. You have folly. And, you know, that's folly it runs itself into the ground. That's how that works. But true knowledge and wisdom is conformity to God. So wisdom aligns with God. To be full of knowledge is to be full of the Spirit who gives us knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And that's the big thing. That's the big conversation I had with the young man Thursday. How do you know things? How do you know? Well, I can see. I know I'm standing here on this cement. I know that. Okay, but how do you even, how do you know you're not in the matrix? How do you know that you can even justify your knowledge? How do you even know that's concrete? You know, and you talk about knowledge, and, and I was explaining to him that there are different types of knowledge, but the most important knowledge is the one that the Holy Spirit gives to us to illumine our hearts so we can see God for who he really is. That is knowledge, and that's something that is required to make sense of the entire world. So knowledge is ultimately sourced by God. That's where Paul's point is here. So having laid the foundation of knowledge in accordance to God's will, God's purposes, we can build on that. Ethical conformity then can come and, and, and can now take place. The problem of subjective ethics today, it's, you know, I do what I want, it's fine. It's not a baby, it's a clump of cells. You know, that, that logic, the problem with it, they don't understand ethics because they don't understand God. You have to have the knowledge of God in order to have the ethics of God. That's the foundation of it. So being transformed in the mind and filled with spiritual knowledge is the necessary component to walking, he says in verse 10, in a manner worthy of the Lord and pleasing Him, he says, in all respects. Pleasing God in everything He's commanded to do, commanded to us. Now he says the word filling there, which is interesting. Filling, filling implies a vacuum of the heart. There's something that's not innate in us as broken uh, image bearers until Christ restores us by His Spirit. We need a filling, though, even after we're justified, justified by faith because, yes, we've been justified, but now we move on to sanctification based on that justification. So filling implies a vacuum. And then he uses the word walking. In Scripture, walking is a referential description of one's conduct and behavior. To walk with God is to be in accord with God to walk the way he's commanded us to walk. So knowing something, this is where he's, what he's driving home here, knowing something and acting on it is bound up together, each implying the other. There's no division of that in Scripture. There's no knowing something and then not acting on it, because if you don't act on it properly, you don't actually know it. That's the logic here. right? Yeah, I know Christ, but I live like however I want. Then you don't know Christ. You don't know him. 
They're bound up together. The Gnostics, they didn't care about action or inaction. Many of them influenced by the Stoics and Epicureans and other Greek philosophers. They just cared about inner knowledge. They could do with their body whatever they wanted. It didn't matter. Secret knowledge was inside. They possessed it. Therefore, they could live however they want. That's the temptation in Colossae right now. Early seeds were planted in this church, and Paul is striking at the heart of it and saying, no, you can't drive a wedge between knowledge and action. They're bound up together. And that's what they would say. The Gnostics say, who cares what you do with your body? It doesn't matter. It's just the soul inside that matters. And that's a platonic concept anyway. But Christianity, we know, encompasses the whole of creation. Christianity encompasses the whole and the totality of creation. The physical and the spiritual. The material and the immaterial. Wisdom and knowledge. Uh, mind and body. Soul and body. Christianity restores nature. It restores what we've had in the garden before sin entered. So knowing God means knowing holiness. It's part of what he's praying for them for. Knowing God means knowing holiness. Familiarity with, and knowledge of God means familiarity and knowledge of righteousness. Uh, walking the talk, as it were, is the Christian program. That's the Christian program. Walking the talk. Healthy trees bear fruit. Uh, a consequence of knowing God's will is living God's way. If you know God's will, you live God's way. If you're not living God's way, you don't understand his will. You're missing something. So the true test of knowledge, Jesus tells us about this, about uh, you, you shall know a tree by its fruit, right? That's the true test of knowledge. The true test of knowledge is, is the fruit of good works, leading to more and more, more and more filling. That's the true test of knowledge. Always knowing, always growing, always filling. That's Christian sanctification. And the point here is this. Paul is essentially saying, be the new humanity that Christ has called you to be. He's restored his image in you. Be that way. Be that way. Live soberly so that you can carry out that vocation in the world. And we aim to please God, not men. We aim to please God, not men. And pleasing God, of course, requires your entire being. Now, building on this in verse 11... Paul prays that the church would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Do you pray for strength? Regularly, do you pray for strength? God, I'm waking up. It's Monday. I don't like Monday. I don't want to be here on this Monday. Give me strength. Do you pray for strength? Do you pray for strength in others? I think sometimes, especially when we talk about like health concerns, oh, we're going to pray for so-and-so's health. Maybe we need to say, give them the strength to endure this trial. Because if you walk through a season of difficulty, health, health struggle, you name it, whether it's an accident or you know, the sickness, whatever, that can be a very dark time. Do you pray for strength to endure? God, help me and others and so-and-so to get through this because this can be very, very difficult and taxing on the soul. Do you pray for strength? I mean, we should be wanting to be strengthened with all power. You need strength to see knowledge and action put in place. If you're weak and you're tempted to sin, you don't have the strength to say no. You don't have strength to, to refuse that, to run from and flee from temptation. So to accomplish God's will, strength is absolutely required, which is why he mentions it here. But the goal here is the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, he said. Strength, power, and might in the Lord, it looks like endurance. That's steadfastness. Holding the line when the battle rages on. 
It's actually a great word and a metaphor for while you're in a battle and you're on the front lines, don't cower and retreat. You got to hold the line. That's where that phrase comes from. Hold the line. Endure. Be steadfast. The battle rages on. Don't you move. Evil forces today want to rip you apart, want to rip your family apart, want to rip churches apart because they want to rip cultures apart. That's what they do. The question is, will you per persevere? Will you persevere? Will you exhibit long-suffering in the face of adversity? Will you stand firm while the enemy rages on? Or will you run in the other direction when things get challenging? Don't put all your eggs in the, in the political basket. <laughs> Don't, because um, all this talk about a red wave Tuesday ended up with a red trickle. And people were very disappointed. Well, it is frustrating. But guess what? That's the way things are at the moment. We need to persevere despite that. So will you persevere or will you run away? Or will you fill your mind with doubt and worry and anxiety and, and completely give yourself to that? If there was ever a time for the church of Jesus Christ to exhibit the fortitude necessary to hold the line against the power of darkness, it is now. It is now. Steadfastness or endurance, it means actually running the race. Not just talking about running the race. Not just watching other people run the race. You run the race. Don't break pattern either. Don't get sidetracked by things you might see. Run the race. Patience means climbing some mountains along the way. Paul continues. He says joyously, this phrase joyously, at the end of 11 and into 12, joyously giving thanks to the Father. Now stop for a second. Note that the fruit of joy is rooted in the soil of adversity. He just talked about adversity, and now he's talking about joy. And you think, that seems contradictory. How could that be? That's why. The fruit of joy is rooted in the, in the soil of adversity. Holiness is oftentimes climbing uphill. It's climbing uphill. Joy is, is, joy is I'm convinced of this. I really am. Joy is enduring the pain with a limp. I really believe it in ministry. It's just enduring the pain, constant pain, constant struggle, but constant joy too. Enduring the pain with a limp. Uh, faithfulness has its bruises. It really does. Uh, fruit requires pulling weeds. There are no shortcuts in any of this. If you want the joy of the Lord in your life, be prepared to be tried by the world. Be prepared to be tested by our Father. See, there is a war against sin, the flesh, and the devil, and there is joy in thanksgiving. Joyously giving thanks to the Father. It's as if Paul prays this, Lord, the onslaught of evil seems insurmountable and unconquerable. We're in a heap of trouble. Give your people a steadfast spirit. Give them endurance and make it truly joyful because your strength and might and power is at work in all of them. That's what his prayer is. If I could just switch it around a little bit. That's what his prayer is. Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his own spirit than he who captures a city. You could be Alexander the Great capturing all the city, all the world, but if you don't know how to rule your spirit, I mean, that you're devastating yourself and your friends and your family and the world around you. Now, greatness, according to Jesus, greatness is last and it's low. 
Greatness is last and it's low. It's not first and high. It's last and it's low. That's what greatness really is. And joy is purified when adversity is present. Joy is purified when adversity is present. One of the, one of the surest ways to cultivate joy in your life is by practicing thanksgiving and gratitude. And not just once a year when you're sitting around the table with a bunch of delicious food. <laughs> practice thanksgiving Practice gratitude. That is the source of joy. We think the source of joy is just venting and complaining. If I could just get it out. Contrary to what the <laughs> proverb says about the fool giving vent to his spirit. That's not where joy is found. Joy is thankfulness. Joy is gratitude. Joy is humility. Joy is knowing that Christ is with you no matter the difficulty. So humility, not pride. And in practice, is, as you know, requires time and effort. None of us just wake up with a rhythm of thankfulness. We have, it requires practice and effort. And if you don't know what to be thankful for, if, and, and children, I'm talking to you too, if you don't know what to be thankful for in your life, you're not paying attention. You're not paying attention, adults, too, to what God is doing among, your, among us. You're not, we're not paying attention if you don't know what to be thankful for. Something as simple in the morning, it says, thank you, I'm alive and awake again for another day. Now, incidentally, Paul's going to give you three reasons here. And there are three reasons in verses 12, 13, and 14 for you to be thankful. First, we've been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That is, the Father owns the inheritance. The Father owns the inheritance, and thus only He can qualify or authorize entrance into it. And here we have the language of Exodus, by the way. The inheritance of the earth... Uh, that the meek shall inherit. Uh, too many Christians ar argue in, in, in culture, like, well, we're, we're the uh, visitors, you're the home team. The earth is, belongs to the meek. It's our world. It's God's world because, and as a result, it's our world. But we've been made sufficient. We've been qualified for uh, this inheritance as light breaks through from the heavens upon the earth. And inheritance is, in Scripture, usually a reference to salvation in the broader sense. It's eternal life that Christ gives to his saints. Jesus is Joshua, the earth is the promised land, and the church is the new Israel. That's the language of the Exodus here in the New Testament. But the point is, Christians are joint heirs with the angels and saints in the realm of God's salvific light. You are, you've been qualified to be there. You're in the light as he is in the light because he puts you there, not because you were good enough and you did it yourself. And grace is what makes that possible. That's the first reason we can give thanks. We have an inheritance. Second, we can be thankful because the Father rescued us from the authority of darkness. Verse 13. He rescued us from the authority of darkness and He transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love. Christians are people who have been rescued out of the grip of malevolent spiritual bondage and we've been transferred or transported into the kingdom of Christ. This great transportation process. I couldn't help but think about the movie Home and how they just like picked people up and moved them. Sucked them up into this thing and then moved them. It's just hilarious. Hilarious. But that's, the, that's the, literally what the phrase means, transferred. Transported. You've been picked up and moved to somewhere else. You've been moved from the grip of darkness. We've been picked up and, and we've been transplanted to another territory, another domain, the realm of King Jesus. Just like Israel was rescued and transplanted, so the church 
But the domain of, and authority, by the way, doesn't negate the world. It deals with the world. Christians today, we, we went through two years of nobody understanding Romans 13. And now we're going through years of nobody understanding John 19. And that is the section where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of Christ doesn't originate from the world. It doesn't originate from the world, but it concerns the world. And that's the interpretation of the text. And that's, again, a point Christians today need to understand. And note further that this is the kingdom of the Son of His love. Love is not love. The kingdom is love. God is love. We've been transferred. We've been rescued. We're out of darkness. We're into light, which means we're into love. Third reason you can be thankful is because... Thanks to Jesus, look at verse 14. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has executed the Father's kingdom, being its mediatorial representative. And part of King Jesus' work stems from Jesus' high priestly work. His king, his king work is, it comes from his priestly work. Now, redemption means that we've been purchased from the slave market. We were slaves of sin. We've been purchased out of it. We have been released because, according to the bankers, there is a credit on your account. You didn't put it there. Christ put it there. You had infinite debt. Christ wipes it clean with his name credited to your account. We've been released. We've been redeemed out of the slave market because of a payment that was made. The correlative effect of redemption is the forgiveness of sins. The sins that held us in bondage have been forgiven because the price has been paid. Note the connection. You have been forgiven because the price was paid. That's the order. Our release is connected to the forgiveness. And that's what the cross of Christ does. Christ is the agent of the Father's will, the one who accomplished our redemption, our forgiveness, in his substitutionary death and victorious resurrection. And these things cannot be separated like the later Gnostics would try to do. Now, how shall we then live? Just a few more things to think about. Paul prays in verse 10 for the Colossians to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We are commanded to please Him in all respect. All respects. That's a command, not a suggestion. If you get around to it, maybe obey God. No, in all respects, in every area of life, we are told, we are commanded to please Him. In other words, the purpose... The purpose of the Christian life is to please the Lord, to image Him well, to exhibit His characteristics, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our, our aim should be to please the Lord in all things. It should be. However, oftentimes we do not do this. And stated differently, we ought to reflect the reality of this kingdom light that has transferred us into another authority's domain. In our day-to-day day -day thought patterns, our prayer life, our walking in obedience as, as we carry out the gifts God has given, given us, all of it, all of it should be one giant reflection of knowledge. It should be a reflection of wisdom. It should be a reflection of understanding. In fact, as Paul says here, the prerequisite to walking in this manner is being filled with the full knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So husbands and wives, fathers, uh, fathers and mothers, children, grandkids, everyone, we aim to please the Lord. We aim to please the Lord, and with Christ's Spirit, you can please the Lord. So is your life marked? 
Is, is your life fruitful? Is your life marked by wisdom and maturation? And is your, is your life pleasing to God? Do you even think about such things? I think many Christians go their entire mundane lives never considering this question. Is my life pleasing to the Lord? They don't ask the question. They simply exist day after day, doing the same old things, never mortifying the same old sins. Rarely do they experience the joy of the Lord. They just sort of ho-hum along in their lives. I've seen it up close. <laughs> and there's no joy. They never stop. They never ask the question. And to, and to not ask that question is actually to answer it, ironically. Am I actively and, and with wisdom sagaciously determined to please the Lord of glory whose Son has purchased my freedom? Do I wake up and think about that? One of, the, one of the main issues with our world today is the fact that Christians don't ask that question. It seems as if the question, it just doesn't occur to us. And there's plenty to, you think about the world right now, there's plenty of blame to go around, right? I get it. The debased, degenerate minds that walk our streets are ubiquitous, and it is debased. I mean, there's some really bad thinking going on out there in the world. But Christianity today needs help, especially if we're going to chart a new path forward in the culture. And that said, many Christians do not, it seems to me, they don't think that they're here to please the Lord. They don't think that that's their aim in life. Their aim in life is just to have a happy family, send out nice postcards, um, and just sort of get eke through uh, with their lives. They don't think they're here to please God. Functionally Gnostics. They believe that they can confess Jesus between their ears without being required to bear fruit with their hands. And many think that inward illumination that, that punches the ticket, gets them on the train, right, to heaven. They think that there's no meaningful fruit that's required. You have Christians today who are scared of the world. They refuse to have children. They just want to be raptured away into eternal bliss. And this viewpoint is fueled by two-kingdom theology and the pietists. That is Gnostic to the core. And it has more to do with Platonism than Christianity. And I'm here to shout from the rooftops that there's no such thing as a barren, vacuous, and empty orthodoxy. There's no such thing. It does not exist. We try to make it exist. There's no such thing as a barren, vacuous, or empty orthodoxy. A Christianity that does not bear fruit personally in the family, in the church, and in the world is a disobedient Christianity. It is completely foreign to Scripture, and it is foreign to Christ himself. Paul says that we are justified by faith, by faith alone. And then James comes along and says, well, this faith is never alone. Show me your justification by your works. So once declared just by faith, itself a gift, that faith begins to flourish in your life, and it does work. Orthodoxy, that means right belief, is tied to orthopraxy, right action. And that's because God, listen, God does not plant dead seeds in the ground. He doesn't plant dead seeds in your heart. What we are after is credenda, things to be believed, and agenda, things to be done. In the biblical world and life view, they go together. Now, according to the Apostle Paul, pleasing God f requires a few things. First, it requires the bearing of fruit in every good work. Second, it requires growing in the knowledge of God. And third, our lives should be marked by steadfastness and patience. So God is pleased when we do good work, when we spur one another on, when we encourage one another, when we serve one another. 
God is pleased in that. He's also pleased when we live peaceful lives in front of those who are outside the covenant. He is pleased with that. God is pleased also when we grow in knowledge of God, when our hearts and minds are grounded in the word of God, knowing God deeper and deeper, knowing ourselves more deeply and more soberly, becoming more self-aware. God is pleased when we are self-aware because God is entirely self-aware. God is pleased also when we endure during a trial, when we really truly exhibit steadfastness and patience. There is no such thing as a hurried Christianity that's losing its mind because of culture or family struggles or whatever. That doesn't exist. That's not the fruit of Christianity. So, in summary, pleasing God requires your entire being. It requires your entire life. Not just your heart, not just your mind, not just your hands. All of it. All of Christ for all of life. And the anchor of this whole program is the kingdom light Christ has in fact accomplished. Christian action proceeds from Christian doctrine. The power of Christ's deliverance is the power of Christ's kingdom authority. And it is that same deliverance, the same deliverance that brought you from darkness into light, is the same deliverance that transforms men and nations. The ability to please God in these ways rests on the rock of Jesus Christ. So the Father, He's qualified us. He's brought us, He's, he's permitted us to come into His inheritance. The Father transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The Son's work has literally bought our freedom and sent our sins away. So we really truly possess redemption and forgiveness. And, and the Spirit has applied this to our account. The Holy Spirit has taken what the Father and the Son has done, has put it in us, writing it on our hearts, transforming our nature, natures into the image of the Son. Which means, all I'm saying is, you have what you need. We have what we need. Our lives can be transformed because they are transformed in Christ. The great exodus has been accomplished. Past tense. We have left Egypt entirely. And now we get to plunder them. One of our favorite verses around here. What Paul wants for the Colossians is what Christ wants for Crossing Crown Church. That's what he wants. A healthy sign of maturity is the expression of gratitude to God for the incredibly gracious things that Jesus has done. And the things that he has done is the very same power at work in us. It's the same power at work in the world. So we'll end with this thought. Living, living before the face of God, aiming to please our, our uh, reigning king with gratitude, work, and the tools of forgiveness and redemption, that is what it means to live in kingdom light, to truly please him. And know that you can because you have been given what you need. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we are, are grateful for your word and we thank you that uh, Paul has given us so much richness here in this letter to the church in Colossae. And I ask and pray that you would help us. Help us to grow in knowledge and wisdom and understanding. Help us to be full of that wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And frankly, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, help us to be joyful. Help us not to forget our first love. Help us to, to remember the, the things that have been accomplished for us. And keep apathy away from us. Lord, help us to truly celebrate what you've given us each and every day. Teach our children, Lord. Teach our children to know that they have so much to be thankful for. 
There's so much gratitude available because of what Christ has done. And may we praise Him not only with our hearts and minds, but with our lips and with our hands. We aim to please You, Father. And thanks to the Son and the Spirit's work in us, we know we can. In Christ's name, amen.